Welcome to the latest episode in our series on understanding the UK national security and investment regime. At the beginning of the year, the UK government introduced a new investment screening regime, quite unprecedented in UK regulation of corporate activity, since it has established a new power to review and to intervene in corporate transactions. In this podcast series, we provide insight into what's driving the new regime, how it will operate in practice and its particular impact on those sectors most affected. This podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast series and in each episode I am joined by DLA Piper's competition, government affairs and sector specialists. In previous episodes, We have covered the political context for the new regime and discussed its legal background and looked at particular sectors. In this episode, our seventh, we will discuss the impact of the regime on the energy sector, including briefly reviewing the legal context, both generally and in relation to the energy and civil nuclear sectors. To discuss this, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Sam Schlesinger, a partner in the competition team, and Andreas Gunst, a partner in our energy team, who practices from our London and Vienna offices. So Sam, if I can come to you first, the regime has wide-ranging implications for M&A activity involving businesses or assets connected with the UK. We covered this in detail in our previous episodes, but could you please give us a brief overview of the legal context just to frame our discussion today on the energy sector? Well, the key headline points on the legislation are as follows. First, it came into force on the 4th of January of this year, and it gives the government the ability to investigate acquisitions that could harm the UK's national security and to call in transactions that completed after November 2020. Some transactions, those where the target is active in one of 17 specified sectors, the sectors are set out in a statutory instrument, those transactions are subject to a mandatory notification with the remainder being subject to a voluntary regime. The regime applies both to the acquisition of qualifying entities and of qualifying assets, provided that the target entity or assets sells to UK customers and depending on the level of control acquired. There is no de minimis threshold. This means that no deal or target is too small to be caught by the legislation and minority investments, even by a non-UK acquirer over a non-UK target, can be subject to the mandatory filing requirements. Notification is made to the Investment Security Unit within the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, or BASE, and the Secretary of State for BASE, currently Kazi Karteng, has the final say. But BASE does consult with other arms of government, such as the Ministry of Defence. The government can impose conditions on acquisitions which raise national security concerns, including in some circumstances unwinding or blocking a transaction. The Act is focused on national security risks rather than economic risks such as job retention or creation, but this is a reference to national security in the broadest sense of the UK's economic security. Not notifying a deal, which is subject to the need for a mandatory filing, can result in both civil and criminal penalties. You mentioned the mandatory sectors, and we're going to talk about how they apply in the energy sector in a bit more detail in a moment. But before we get into that detail, I think it's worth touching on recent events. And with that, there's huge pressure to disengage from Russian gas supplies. 
What impact do you think this will have on, on the application of the Act in the energy sector? Andreas, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the recent geopolitical developments in the Ukraine have obviously have had a quite a fundamental impact on the European energy security of supply situation. And we've certainly seen that the consequence of that, even though gas is still being purchased from Russia, as is coal and also oil, prices have really risen quite dramatically as a consequence, certainly, of an already constrained market, but at the same time, the uncertainty around sort of next steps and further sanctions, which might actually apply to some of the major Russian oil and gas companies. We are fortunate enough in the UK that our sort of exposure in relation to gas and coal and also to a degree oil supplies from Russia are more limited than is the case for a number of the European countries. We have our own gas. We predominantly still rely on UK continental shelf gas and oil supplies. But however, it does have a direct impact. And it's worth just noting that obviously, because of the connections to the continent with our interconnectors, but also because of the the trading activities that are you know led through London for most of the energy commodity sector, activities actually have seen also prices rising and indirectly also having a huge impact on credit requirements and also other areas such as the need to provide additional margining. Now, equally, I think we're sort of in a slightly more fortunate position compared to a number of other European countries that the current investments in critical infrastructure, so the things that the NSIA looks at, are fairly limited. And whilst a lot of trading, and in particular also trading for Russian oil and gas majors, is going through London, the amount of investment that is actually held by Russian entities in the UK in terms of the oil and gas sector and sort of strategic infrastructure as well as supply is fairly limited. Sam, did you have any thoughts on the application of the Act and how the Secretary of State might approach energy transactions in light of the context that Andreas has described? Well, I think given that that's the context in which the Secretary of State will be considering energy-related transactions under the Act, and it underscores the importance of investment, particularly in renewable energy, in the UK's energy mix. The more cheap, clean renewable energy produced in the UK at home, the less exposed we'll be to international gas markets and price volatility. This is likely to make the Secretary of State loathe to use his power in relation to energy transactions, those sorts of energy transactions, except in the clearest of cases. Thanks, that's, that's really interesting. So we think that the importance of maintaining that flow of inward investment is going to be particularly sort of front of mind for Secretary of State in light of recent events. Thank you both. So moving on to the detail of the legal structure of the regime, And of course, a key feature of the Act, as you explained a few moments ago, Sam, is that there is no deal too small. And indeed, any deal in any sector can, in principle, be called in if it meets the triggers, if there's a trigger event. But then we also have these 17 sectors where a mandatory filing is required. So what sort of energy deals will require a mandatory filing? Well, as you say, what determines whether a mandatory filing is required is whether the target business falls within the descriptions set out in the statutory instruments that I mentioned earlier. The government had originally proposed including retail energy suppliers with 250,000 or more customers 
But in the end, retail energy suppliers were excluded. And the government had also wanted to include electricity distributors within the scope of the mandatory filing obligation. But this has been, in the final version of the statutory instruments, it was narrowed to include only authorised electricity operators that provide load via either individual assets with a total installed capacity of at least 100 MW or assets that, when added to those of the acquirer, would have a total installed capacity of at least 1 GW. That amended definition also clarifies that it's limited to authorised energy operators in Great Britain. That was presumably intended to avoid complications in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the continuing functioning of the single electricity market on the island of Ireland, which became a very big issue during the Brexit negotiations. The definition also now includes aggregators that control assets in Great Britain with accumulated total capacity of at least 1 GW, in addition to licensed transmission and distribution operators, whether electricity or gas, as well as owners or operators of interconnectors, also electricity or gas, long-range gas storage and gas reception terminals. Great, thank you. So that's retail energy suppliers and electricity distributors and aggregators. What about oil and gas operators, Andreas? On the oil and gas side, as Sam already mentioned, obviously LNG terminals are covered and that sort of extends into the upstream oil and gas side. So Everything that is a typical infrastructure, be it receiving terminal for gas in particular, or also terminals for crude oil, as well as upstream petroleum pipelines. So that's effectively both crude and gas and also infrastructure that is associated with petroleum production and pipelines that are actually collecting from the individual fields and similar are also all covered. And again, here the threshold is relatively low with 3 million tonnes a year of oil equivalent. So we're really looking at effectively every infrastructure, unless it's from a very, very small field. And I think, again, that's very important to point out. We're looking at a very comprehensive approach here to all of the relevant infrastructure that in its overall combination makes up the UK oil and gas infrastructure. One of the important things also to note is that it does address also prospective terminals. So we are going to obviously look in particular when we look also at our net zero targets at additional infrastructure being built both for hydrogen or expansion of the existing LNG terminals that we have in the UK. And obviously with that, it's important that obviously this sort of infrastructure will become more important in the future also more strategically important for the UK gas supply and UK energy supply more generally also in relation to hydrogen imports and similar and so again here it's looking at casting the net fairly widely on these prospective terminals. In relation to petroleum-based fuels so basically refined products or a combination of refined products with sort of the additional element of potentially additional fuels coming from power to X activities. We're looking at notification effectively when it comes to about 500,000 tonnes per annum. There are some qualifications and exceptions in particular in relation to downstream facilities. 
that will only be caught if the facility's capacity would exceed 50,000 tonnes. But again, just another way of sort of demonstrating that this is really looking comprehensively at the different energy infrastructure that we currently have, but in the future also will have for our security of supply. So just thinking about renewable energy deals, and we've seen a number of transactions in that space. Sam, are those going to trigger a mandatory filing? Yeah, so interestingly, the Act doesn't distinguish between renewable and other energy deals, although the government had been urged to make that distinction. So, for example, the Act catches a large generation project where the acquirer and its group and the target taken together have generating assets of 1GW or more. And because the capacity of the target's generating assets is aggregated with those of the purchaser and the purchaser's group, even acquisitions of small assets can be caught by the mandatory filing regime. Andreas, do you think that's a cause for concern for operators? Yeah, I don't think it will be in the end. I think if you look at most of the international investors, they are used to sort of similar limitations. Certainly, if you look at the major renewable energy investors in the UK, they generally come from countries where there are also similar limitations, although the regime in the UK now obviously going a little bit further in terms of its comprehensiveness and the filing. But I don't think it will really perturb investors. It will not hold back investment. But it is just something that, as with other issues, need to be considered in relation to subsidy control-related issues and perhaps you know merger clearance-related issues also need to be considered. So it's something that needs to be built into the process, but something that in the most cases should not really lead to any particular issue arising. Yeah, so it's just another work stream in the deal structure that needs to be um, taken into account. And finally, just thinking about the civil nuclear industry uh, and given how political that has been, do you think, will all acquisitions in that area be subject to a mandatory filing? Andreas? Yeah, I mean, nuclear is obviously an area that is of particular relevance in terms of both energy security, but also more broadly, the security around the civil use of nuclear energy. So, you know, obviously, some of the experience that we have had in the past, in particular with Hinkley Point C, has obviously also been actually a driver for the NSIA to be drafted and be put into a statute because we have seen where some of the issues could potentially come from, where there is a dominant investment from a particular country or a particular player in the market. So certainly where there is a sector that provides around 17% of the UK's electricity needs still, this clearly is an area where we will definitely see heightened interest and certainly the Act has been drafted to address this particular part of the energy sector. Sam, any additional thoughts from you? Well, just to say that looking at the definition of the civil nuclear sector in the regulations, an acquisition will require a filing if the target holds a number of licences in respect of nuclear sites or holds or transports nuclear material or has certain nuclear-related confidential information. So I think you know there's a huge range of transactions in relation to civil nuclear that will trigger a mandatory filing. 
Yeah, absolutely. So anybody operating in, in those sectors or doing a deal in those sectors is going to have to think very carefully about how the legislation applies to their transaction. And as you say, it's high likelihood really that they're going to be caught one way or another. Well, thank you both very much. That's extremely interesting. Thank you, Andreas and Sam, for talking to us today. And thank you to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of DLA Piper's series, Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. Thanks very much. Thank you.